The Stream of Time. Welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. I'm your host, Elliot, and this episode I'll be concluding the story of the fall of the Western Roman Empire that I began last episode. We'll start with a quick recap of what we've already learned. A plague in the 2nd century set the Roman Empire on an uneven keel. The problems set forth by the plague were compounded by more problems, such as an increase in activity by Germanic tribes to the north of the empire, a new existential threat to the east in the Sassanids, political instability, and economic problems such as inflation and recession. Let's take a quick look at the Germanic invasions of the 3rd century again. For the several centuries that the Roman Empire was at the height of its power, the idea that an enemy force could penetrate into the Italian peninsula, much less threaten Rome itself, was unthinkable. The crisis of the 3rd century showed that the times of implicit safety were past, and Germanic tribes made it farther south than any enemy tribe had since the 4th century BC. That's about 700 years before, just to be clear. Because of this, various emperors started moving their headquarters for strategic reasons. For part of the 3rd century AD, the emperors headquartered in the city of Mediolanum along the north end of the Italian peninsula, modern-day Milan. In the early 5th century, the Western Roman emperors moved to Ravenna, along the northeast area of the Italian peninsula. Ravenna was chosen mainly because it was surrounded by swampy areas, which would make it difficult for a large invasion force to siege the city. But more importantly, Diocletian set the stage for some emperors headquartering in the eastern part of the empire. Diocletian himself didn't think Rome was important enough to take control of, and delegated that section of the empire out to a lower emperor, Maximian. Diocletian headquartered himself mainly in Nicomedia, which is located in northern modern-day Turkey. He did this for a few reasons. For one, this was a prosperous area in the empire. Lots of trade went through this area from both the further east, at various times a Silk Road even, and from the west. Second, this area was less affected, for now, by the Germanic movements over Roman borders. At this point in time, this tended to be a bigger problem for the western half of the empire. Third, it was simply more comfortable to live here. The reason I went through all of this discussion of capitals wasn't to confuse you or motivate you to pull out a map although having a map handy while listening isn't a bad idea. I went through this discussion of headquarters and capitals because of Constantine. Diocletian's emphasis on the East seems to have sparked an idea for Constantine. He refounded the ancient Greek city of Byzantium into a new city, Nova Roma, which literally translates to New Rome. He funded massive building projects and development, and eventually people called this Constantine City. In Greek, this is Constantinopolis, which eventually shortened to Constantinople. Constantinople is going to be crucial to our story, so it's worth taking some time to discuss what made it so important. It was almost impregnable due to its unique geography. The best way to picture Constantinople is to think of a triangle pointing to the right, east. The flat side facing to the left, west, is the only part of the triangle that faces land. The other two sides, north and south of the triangle, are surrounded by water. Invasions by water were inherently more difficult, which meant that Constantinople only had to deal with one strip of land to defend, while sea walls and the water itself provided a natural defense on the other two sides. 
When the Emperor Theodosius II built the huge Theodosian walls in the mid-5th century, the city stood for almost 1,000 years until May 29, 1453, without being totally conquered, with a couple small exceptions during times that the empire did not have enough money to pay defenders. The Theodosian walls were impregnable until the development of gunpowder and cannon technology, and in fact, when the walls did fall, it was to literally the largest cannon that had ever been built in the world at the time. Another strategic advantage the city of Constantinople had was that the north body of water bordering the city was actually something of a bay that could be blocked with a large chain. This allowed Constantinople to keep a harbor safe even in times of siege. I should take a minute to define what I mean by siege, because it's one of those words that historians tend to take for granted that everyone knows the definition of, and it's also one of those words that people tend to get the wrong idea about. A siege usually took place around a city or some fortification such as a castle. The idea was simple. Surround the city with soldiers, prevent anyone from leaving, and starve them into submission. So Constantinople was pretty much impregnable and unsiegeable. Keep this in mind as we get to the end of this lecture. Over the course of the 4th century, the empire was variously ruled by one emperor or a couple emperors ostensibly working together one in the west and one in the east. The empire was more or less stable, but by the tail end of the 4th century, an old problem becomes much bigger. At this point, we start seeing bigger migrations of Germanic tribes. In fact, it's called the Great Migration, and because I always love an opportunity to say long German words, it is sometimes referred to as the Volkswanderung, or Volkswanderung, which translates to something like people moving. You actually might have recognized Volk as similar to the English word folk, and Wanderung is obviously linguistically similar to wandering. What was happening was that a new threat had come from the east, the Huns. Like many of the tribes that would eventually come from the east, they were horse archers. This meant they could quickly send devastating volleys of arrows and then quickly retreat out of range of the opposing force. And they were terrifying terrifying to the Germanic tribes such as the Goths, and they wanted to settle in areas in which the Germanic peoples had been more or less settling, such as areas of modern-day Ukraine and modern-day Hungary. Hungary especially was attractive to the Huns, as the grassy plains of Hungary provided a good place for the nomadic tribe to feed and run their horses. Now, I just said Hun and Hungary in the same sentence. So you're probably wondering at this point if Hungary is named after the Huns. The answer is yes, but by mistake. By the time Hungary became an organized federation that resembled something like a kingdom in the late 9th century, the Huns were long gone. The area by now was home to tribes such as the Avars and eventually the Magyars. So whoever named it Hungary was probably trying to call back to the powerful and ferocious Huns. And of course, this wouldn't be the last time in history that the word Huns would be associated with a group that had nothing to do with the original Huns, as 1500 years later, when sending his German army to invade China during the Boxer Rebellion, the German leader Kaiser Wilhelm II implored his army to let the Germans strike fear into the hearts so he'll be feared like the Hun. Ironically, this backfired and ended up being used by the British as propaganda to dehumanize the Germans during World War I. So the Huns were pushing the Germanic tribes up against the borders of the Roman Empire, 
and the Germanic tribes were hoping to settle in areas within the Roman Empire. This is important enough to repeat. The Germanic tribes wanted to live peacefully in the Roman Empire. They wanted to settle. They didn't want to conquer. Eliminate the picture in your mind of Germanic barbarians savagely destroying everything they could find just for the sake of sheer destruction. Replace that with an image of families, of refugees, of desperate people fleeing in terror just trying to find a safe home. A competent emperor or emperors could have avoided disaster. When the problem was becoming imminent, the empire did not have a competent set of emperors. Instead, it had two very incompetent brothers. Valentinian I ruled in the West. On top of being a generally lousy emperor, he seemed to have an anger management problem as he died from a burst blood vessel in his brain while screaming at a diplomatic delegation from a Germanic tribe in the West known as the Quadi. And that's all I'm going to say about Valentinian I. The East was ruled by Valentinian's brother, Valens. Valens had some negotiations with the Goths seeking asylum in the East. By 375, the Goths were totally displaced by the Huns and needed to move. The Goths in this area, whose number we can never be certain of, but probably numbered in the hundreds of thousands if you include non-combatants, were hoping to settle in the area of Illyria, which is roughly the area of modern-day Albania. Well, Valens did pretty much everything wrong. The right move would have been for Valens to fully allow and fund this migration. This would boost the manpower of the empire, increase tax revenue, while at the same time completely removing a potential threat from the board. Instead, he waffled. He delayed decisions, he allowed some in but not others, he delegated a lot of the sensitive handling of the migration to even more incompetent middle management, who took advantage of vulnerable Goths, which provoked them even further. We have reports of Roman commanders providing rotten food for the Goths, and even some reports of Romans demanding children from the Goths as slave payment for the food. Obviously, this made a bad situation worse for everyone. The situation finally bubbled over, and what was supposed to be a controlled migration across the Danube ended up being a flood of refugees crossing the river as the Goths started crossing the Danube in huge numbers, desperate to escape the horrible conditions to which they were subject. Once again, the Emperor Valens mishandled the situation, except this time it resulted in his death at the Battle of Adrianople in 378 AD, modern-day Adirna, Turkey. I won't go into too much detail about the battle, but it's worth noting a couple huge mistakes Valens made. For one, he should have waited for reinforcements from the Emperor in the West, his nephew Gratian. For another, he did a terrible job of getting intelligence about his enemy. This resulted in him getting blindsided by a group of horse-mounted Goths that had been out foraging for food earlier in the fight. The outcome of this battle was crushing to the Eastern Roman army. Two-thirds of the army lost their lives in the battle. The Goths were now free to roam the Eastern Roman Empire for a while unopposed. Rome did on occasion have fairly good diplomatic relations with Germanic tribes, and in some cases had enlisted Germanic tribes as auxiliary armies called foederati. For example, in the mid-4th century, the Emperor Julian the Apostate enlisted the help of the tribe of the Franks, a tribe that would eventually settle in the area which would eventually become modern-day France. 
It was through the concept of the Foederati that Valen's successor, Theodosius I, was able to regain order in the empire. Theodosius did what Valens should have done in the first place. He incorporated the Goths into his own army. Before I wrap this up, I need to make a couple points. First of all, if your head is starting to spin from all the names and you can't tell your Diocletian from your Theodosius, don't panic. You don't need to perfectly remember every name I've mentioned. I'm telling a broad story, and while it's impossible to tell the story without naming some names, it's also not essential that you remember all the names. The second thing I want to emphasize is that, at this point, things are going to move pretty fast until the so-called fall in 476. I don't want to give the impression that not much happened over the next century. A lot happened. But as much as I'd love to talk about all the cool stuff that happened between the 2nd century and the 5th century, everything that I've been discussing so far has been in service of the bigger question of what caused the fall of the Roman Empire. And it's going to become clear shortly why I've been spending so much time talking about the Germanic tribes, even as I go out of my way to point out that they were not savage barbarians tearing the empire apart just for the sake of it. So let's get back to Theodosius, because his reign is going to be notable for a couple reasons. The first can be stated simply. Theodosius was the last man to rule over the entire undivided Roman Empire. After his death, his two sons, Honorius and Arcadius, took control of the western and eastern halves, respectively. From that point on, the empire would effectively be two halves ostensibly working together, but as often as not, working to weaken the other half. This is important to remember because it goes partway towards explaining why the eastern half of the empire was able to continue on independently for another 1,000 years after the western half fell. By the time the west fell in 476, the East was already functioning independently. Okay, so what else about Theodosius is notable? Remember I said that Theodosius incorporated Germanic soldiers, Foiderati, into his army? This didn't only apply to lower rank soldiers. He trusted these men enough to promote some to high ranks, and even in one case allowed one of his trusted Germanic soldier advisors to marry his niece. A very high honor, as this effectively brought this man into the imperial family and bloodline. We don't need to discuss the man himself. What we do need to discuss is the position he was promoted to. The position was called, in Latin, Magister Militum, which translates more or less to Master of Military. This position was second only to the Emperor. This is important because, ultimately, the Empire was a military dictatorship. The word emperor itself comes from the word imperator, which translated to supreme commander of the military. And it was through this command of the military that emperors were able to hold control, or lose control as in the case of the crisis of the 3rd century that I mentioned last episode. So the position of Magister Militum was clearly important. Theodosius did something that made the position more important than he intended. He died before his sons were old enough to effectively rule their halves of the empire alone. This meant the Magister Militum positions, there was one in the eastern half as well eventually, became somewhat of a regent to the still very young emperors. But since this position also had a high degree of control of the military, ambitious men in this position could theoretically use this to try to gain even more power. And that's exactly what happened. 
The Germanic Magisteres Militum didn't try to become emperors on their own. They knew they lacked the political capital to install themselves, half or full-blooded Germans, as emperor. Instead, they would often try to marry their family into the imperial family in the hopes of generating an heir to the throne, or use their military power to put political pressure on the current emperor, or they would try to use the political capital they did have to install a puppet emperor that would be willing to do their bidding on the throne. While there were some weak and poorly planned attempts by emperors both in the West and the East to regain the power they had lost, the Western emperors were never able to shake the power of the Germanic Magister's Militum in a way that the Eastern emperors had. So now we're at a point that we can understand what happened in 476 AD. By the last 20 years leading up to 476, it was so clear that there was no way the Western emperors were going to ever regain any power, and the string of puppet emperors appointed by a Germanic kingmaker were so weak that in 476, the Germanic overlord in control at the time, Odoacer, realized that there was simply no point in keeping an emperor around. So he effectively fired the last Western Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus, who, as I mentioned last episode, was so unimportant that history didn't even record the date of his death. So what happened then? Well, I mentioned the Germans weren't willing to crown themselves emperor, at least not until Charlemagne did three centuries later, but that's well out of the scope of our story today. But the Germans had no compunctions about crowning themselves to the title of king, in Latin, rex. So what you see in the years after 476 is Germanic kingdoms start forming. While some of these kingdoms rose and fell long before our time, and the kingdoms don't directly map onto modern-day nations of Europe, you can still think of these kingdoms as seeds of the modern-day nations of Europe. I'll give you some examples. The Goths had split into two tribes, the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths. The Visigoths eventually settled and formed a kingdom in Spain. The Ostrogoths settled in Italy and crowned themselves kings of the Italian peninsula. The aforementioned Franks had already started settling in modern-day France and other parts of northern Europe. Even the North African coastal areas that had been under control of the Roman Empire were taken over by the tribe of the Vandals. It wasn't complete chaos. In many cases, these tribes used institutions that had already been set up by the Romans. Not just buildings, but governmental organization. It worked well for the Romans, and many of the Germanic tribes did not see a need to reinvent the wheel. So in some ways, this was a continuation of the Roman Empire, but manifested in a different way. Speaking of continuation of the Roman Empire, the eastern half most definitely was a direct continuation of the Roman Empire. The Emperor Leo I managed to use political maneuvering to finally and permanently break the power of the Germanic puppet masters in the east at around the same time that the west was falling. This political stability helped keep the east going. But as I mentioned before, Constantinople probably proved even more crucial to the survival of the Eastern Roman Empire. Throughout the next thousand years, even as the remaining empire would periodically expand and contract, Constantinople was spectacularly difficult to penetrate, and indeed, the few times it was taken over by a foreign force, it was only when the empire itself was at its weakest. Hopefully after these two episodes you have a better understanding of the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe, 
and see you next episode on The Stream of Time.